This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's been two days since Green Party leader Annemi Paul announced that she has fended off the very public challenge to her leadership, at least for now. She's spoken candidly about how hurtful these events have been, and she said that as the first black Jewish woman to lead a Canadian political party, racism and sexism were factors in the move to oust her. And it's not like Ms. Paul is home free Her election budget and her staff budget have been cut drastically, and the party can revisit the question of her continued leadership after their national convention in one month's time. In the meantime, former Green Party leader Elizabeth May finally made a statement supporting Paul, though it can be described as lukewarm at best. And most of all, there's the question of how to win back supporters who don't believe the Green Party is worthy of their votes because of this drama. I'd like to welcome Green Party leader Annemi Paul. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be with you. Um, Well, first of all, I I would imagine that it is difficult to shake off something like this. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Well, it's, you know, it's, it, shaking it off is, is really the great, the, the right way to describe it. I'm, I'm really trying um, very hard to get back to where my attention should be and where our party's attention should be, which is on the issues that, that we all care about, the climate, progressive social policies, and also preparing for what looks to be an election this year. I sure hope that we don't have one, but we certainly need to be prepared, and uh, that's where our attention should be. Uh, Elizabeth May, the former party leader, finally made a statement on this. Uh, you know, it, it 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 seemed to support you, but I, I have to say, not in a very fulsome way. Well, I'm happy to. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful that Elizabeth has uh, has put out a statement, and uh, I, you know, I, I think I think each person uh, will read it and 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 come to their own conclusions. What I see there is support and I'm grateful for it. I certainly support our MPs as well. Uh, I think that every single one of us is determined to unify our party as quickly as possible so that we can we can um, move on. I mean, Elizabeth is out in B.C. and Paul Manley as well, and we all know about the hundreds of forest fires raging out there. Uh, there's, there's the forest fires here as well in Ontario. There's so much work to be done, and, and I'm really committed to that. I know they are too. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, you know, a lot of people uh, watch this unfold basically shaking their heads, and uh, it seems like uh, the faction, if that, if you can call it that, that that wanted you out was very public, while people who supported you were very quiet. One of the, I I actually went back the other day, Libby, and I. I calculated when was the last time prior to Monday that I had said anything about any of these issues and it had been three weeks. And I think the thing with me and with, uh, with those who are really focused uh, where they should be is that we've tried very much to stay focused on that. And I've encouraged people to do that. You know, I am not, uh, I'm not leading a faction. I am not interested in a feud or any sort of infighting whatsoever. My job is to be the top tier leader for our party and, you know, if I'm not able to do that, then I really shouldn't be saying anything. So I think that if we're going to usher in a new type of politics, a new culture in politics that is more inclusive uh, and that is more welcoming to people that are frankly turned off by politics right now, that there have to be some people modeling what it looks like. And so that's what I'm trying to do. And I think the people who support me, they're trying to do that as well. Um you know, speaking of that, let's let's go to that. So, a lot of people that I encounter uh, who considered or have considered the Green Party as the kind of none of the above a place to park a protest vote, but frankly, after watching this debacle, 
where the kind of words used to describe it are, you know, the amateur hour, that a lot of them are hesitating to put their protest votes, which which I think would have been a, a huge opportunity for you in the next election. Well, I can understand people having questions. That's that's completely, completely normal and, and totally expected after um, what they have seen in the last little while. But I would encourage them all to, to look to the future. Um, this is a time of renewal for our party. We have a brand new federal council that will be coming in um, next month. Uh, we have a brand new shadow cabinet. And Libby, this is the most qualified and talented and diverse shadow cabinet, I would say, period, across political parties. It's an extraordinary group. Uh, we're just about to uh, to run the most diverse slate of candidates that we ever had. You know, we've gone from having the least diverse slate to, I think, potentially the most diverse slate. Um, and so that's what the future of the party looks like. And I would also say have a, have a sense of perspective. I'm pretty sure that when, when um, Justin Trudeau had uh, two of his senior cabinet ministers step down, another one defect to the Conservatives, and another one leave to sit as an independent uh, prior, prior to the last election, things look pretty grim. Uh, but, you know, we could turn it around. We're definitely unifying. We're definitely looking to the future. And I think people will be really excited about the Green who's running in their community to represent their community. I, I want to talk about the future in a moment, but putting this to rest, was, was this a matter uh, in a lot of ways of the old guard? I mean, you you have a whole new council, so presumably the old guard finished their terms of the old guard wanting to kind of hang on. Uh, to the reins of power in the party? Um, is that a reasonable way to uh, put it in perspective? Well, you know, I always try not to attribute motive unless I have, you know, I guess this is my, my the lawyer in me, but I try not to attribute motive without without something tangible to, to back it up. So I, I wouldn't, I mean, I think that's a question that only they can answer. All I will say is that for those um, those who were determined to pursue this particular path, uh, I believe that it was an incredibly disproportionate response. Um, I don't think that it was in the best interest of the party. Uh, I think that, uh, and I hope that, you know, now that uh, we're able to move on, that we will. Uh, and I'm really excited about the new federal councillors that will be elected next month. Um, you know, it's going to give us a great opportunity to continue the work that we're doing within the party and to keep building our, our policies, which I continue to believe are policies that people in Canada need because they will make a, a difference in their lives. Uh, a lot of people are expecting an election call next month, and we've heard that your budget is is cut uh, to be able to finish that election by $250,000. How do you deal with that? Well, first, I think it would be a terrible shame for us to have an election next month. And before you ask the next question about, well, isn't that convenient? I mean, we have been saying that for a long time. Uh, you know, if we want to bring in things like universal child care, um, if the announcement yesterday for, um, about a just transition for oil and gas workers is going to become a reality, if we're going to start doing the work on a, on a green recovery, there's still two years left in, in this, the life of this parliament if we want it. There's no reason for us to have an election uh, next month. And we're just climbing out of this pandemic. People are just getting their sea legs, their, well, I guess their a- land legs enemy. back. I, I yep. hate to interrupt, but but the reason for the election will be when the liberals think they can get a majority. Um, You're too right. You're too right about that. And that sounds like that's for the liberals' benefit and not necessarily for the benefit of people in Canada and the women that are waiting for childcare all across the country, for instance. Um, you know, if they win, then of course, you know, things, you know, they they can continue. And if they don't, then what? Um, I do know that certainly on social policies, uh, there is a great deal of consensus when it comes to things like universal childcare. I do know that everyone wants to see a just transition. So let's get that work done. But if there is an election, um, I'm certainly ready to fight it. And of course, one of the reasons that we move to create more certainty for our candidates uh, and for our members. It's so that we're in the best position to fight an election. Um, so, you know, my, my campaign is in great shape. Um, you heard it here first. We're going to be opening our uh, campaign office uh, soon. Um, and so I'm, I'm ready to do that. And we've been working for quite a while now uh, to make sure that 
that uh, we're offering a great choice to people in Toronto Centre. Yeah, but but again, it, it, it does take money and uh, even the choice of the place to run. I mean, I, I think it was very brave of you that it, rather than picking somewhere safe, perhaps in BC or safe-ish, you, you picked a very tough riding where the Liberals have a, a stronghold and you're running against another black woman who is very well known. Well, taking the the last part of that first, I certainly hope that in the years to come, there are many black women running against each other in different parties. The black community is not a monolith. Uh, we have different views. We have different policy perspectives. There was a black woman who ran to lead the Conservative Party of Canada. And in a city as diverse as Toronto, just demographically, if we are going to have true diversity in federal politics, it means that more and more and more uh, people of color, people from racialized communities will be running against each other and they'll be running on policies. Um, and so Toronto Centre is the place that I was born in. It's the place that my, my mom and my grandma got their first jobs uh, here in Canada. Uh, it's a community that uh, needs real representation and, and I'm running for that. There is no safe seat. I wasn't going to unseat one of our um, our incumbents, uh, Green MPs, uh, to take their seat. Uh, I want to run in a community that I believe I can uh, offer something to. And, you know, it's, we have to be daring. I believe that uh, we need to make a breakthrough in Ontario, and this is a great opportunity for us to do it, and I believe that that's a winnable seat. And, and again, what about the money? Well, we, money, there's, there's, money comes from many different sources. I, I remain hopeful that um, we'll get funding from the uh, central office. But in the meantime, I'm grateful to every single person that has donated to our campaign, um, to the local uh, riding association directly. Um, we're very lucky um, to be able to um, uh, count on support. Uh, from members within our party, but also from people outside of our party. And anyone's welcome to go to our website, uh, animepaul.ca, to uh, donate if uh, if they want to support me and support our campaign in Toronto Centre. Okay, you got a great plug in there. Now, uh, looking, sure at, <laughs> looking ahead to our, our next segment, which is uh, on a very serious topic on the Summit on Anti-Semitism, you're the only current Jewish leader of a political party. You were not invited. Correct. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's even more than that. I would say I'm the, I'm the only uh, Jewish leader of a, a federal party uh, with seats in Parliament, uh, but I'm only the second uh, since Confederation. And the last time we had one was about 45 years ago. And so the representation of, of Jewish people in Canadian politics, particularly at the highest level, is, is virtually non-existent. And I can tell you from my own painful experience that anti-Semitism is a very real part and regular part of my life. Um, and I, I would have, I would have really welcomed the opportunity to participate in this important nonpartisan discussion and to share some of my reflections and also some recommendations about how we can combat anti-Semitism uh, in Canadian politics and in general. Can you, um, because can there you... are a lot of young people that, that, you know, in the Jewish community that, that still ask me, is there a place for me? Is there a place? How, what's it like? I'm nervous about this. And I want to be able to tell them that there is. Uh, can you tell us how you've suffered from anti-Semitism? Uh, did that have a part in, in this whole drama about your leadership, or is it online? What, what, how have, have you been targeted? Well, if you, anyone who goes online um, on any of the major social media platforms, almost on any given day, will find uh, some, some uh, form of anti-Semitic co comment uh, that has been um, posted there related to me. I mean, this is not, this is not, um, perhaps I'm the, the biggest target right now because perhaps I'm the most prominent Jewish politician, but, you know, this is something that all Jewish politicians experience across the political spectrum. Our, our loyalty to Canada is, is questioned. We're often accused of having dual loyalties. Uh, we're also, we're, you know, we're, the suggestion is made that we're, we're in the pocket of, of, um, foreign entities. Um, of course, there's the usual tropes about um, our about wealth and privilege. Um, it, is, it is a very common occurrence, and there has been a major spike in anti-Semitism across the board over the last um, over the during the course of the pandemic and over the last few months. 
And every single person who is worried about that, uh, Jewish or not, needs to speak out. Uh, the silence is, is the thing that, that really emboldens the hate. Again, was, was anti-Semitism a factor in the move to oust you? I have I I have no and I I have no information about that uh, at all. As I said, you know, in in terms of attributing motives to people, it's really absolutely not my style. Um, what I what I do believe is that whatever the motives, uh, the uh, the response, uh, the decision uh, to to uh, introduce the motion was completely disproportionate and absolutely not in the interest of the party. Um, particularly given the fact that there's an automatic leadership review uh, once the uh, once we have the next election, so you know I I hope again that that is behind us and that we can move ahead with some certainty and and clarity. But you know I've been very careful with my words. Um, the allegations that were leveled against me back in June uh, contained allegations that were definitely racist and definitely sexist. But I have never used those words in any other context. Um, or directed at any particular person, and I'm going to keep that because I'm, I'm seeking to be an honorable um, person in politics. Okay, uh, what would you like to leave us with? Well, first, I'd like to get your commitment that you'll invite me back on again. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, and uh, then just to say, you know, it's just a, it's a brand new day. Uh, you know, you you've been around a long time, and I have too. And, well, and a day a day in politics is. Uh, is a day in politics is a lifetime. So hopefully a month from now, you know, we're back on our feet and we're talking about the issues, we're talking about the climate and social policy, and this will all be a distant memory that I tell my grandkids about. Okay, well, let's hope so. Best of luck to you, Enemy Paul, leader of the Green Party. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoy your day. Take Thank care. you. Bye-bye. Bye. We are going to take a break. And when we come back, we will be talking about the national summits, two of them to take on hate today on anti-Semitism, tomorrow on Islamophobia. We will have that when we return. And the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. This week, the Liberal government is taking on hate against two of the most targeted minorities in our country. Today, the federal Liberals are hosting a national summit on anti-Semitism. Tomorrow, they host one on Islamophobia. The move comes after a spike in hatred and racist incidents targeting both communities just last month. Things turned deadly when Nathaniel Veltman, a white 22-year-old male, ran over the Afzal family in London, Ontario, uh, killing four members. B'nai B'rith says that as many as 2,610 anti-Semitic incidents were recorded last year, and that does not take into account the spread of online hate. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now, let's go to Canadian Senator Salma Atalajan, Michal Schlesinger, who is the Senior Human Rights Liaison at B'nai B'rith Canada, and Simon Granite, Senior Manager of Policy and Communications at the Centre for Israel, and Jewish Affairs. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having us. Uh, let thank, us thank you. begin with Simon, and uh, the summit is going on as we speak. What are your expectations? Well, thanks for having me on the show, Libby. The summit provides an important opportunity for us to take concrete action um, to combat anti-Semitism. As you mentioned in the intro, there's been a spike in anti-Semitism in Toronto, where I'm located. Uh, the UGA Federation of Greater Toronto noted a five-fold uh, spike in anti-Semitic incidents. So what we're really looking forward to is discussing con- constructive policy proposals uh, with all the summit attendees, including co-chairs of the event, the Honourable Bartish Chagger, Minister of Diversity and Inclusion and Youth, as well as the Honorable Erwin Kotler, Special Envoy on Preserving Holocaust Remembrance and Combating Anti-Semitism. 
Salma Atalajan, what is a concrete action in terms of combating Islamophobia? I mean, the the recent incidences are are deadly. Well, um, thank you for having me um, uh, on to speak about this very important um, issue. You know what I would love to see? But by the time the summit is over, that the government releases a national strategy for combating Islamophobia. So far, we have seen only words. Incidents happen. We all stand up and condemn it, and then it's forgotten. We we need we need something more than just uh, words. Uh, and what would that be? We you know um, we need to have the communities involved. We need to strengthen our hate um, uh, you know hate online laws. Uh, we need to have uh, municipal you know um, uh, municipal. Uh, the hate laws where people can be charged right away if we have incidences of people screaming hate at uh, you know muslims and 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 what what is very disturbing after that horrible horrible incident in london ontario where the family lost their lives is the rhetoric online and 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 the hate that is directed at muslims and that continues you know i'm i'm very happy that uh, the liberals are holding this uh, summit on islamophobia if you remember, it was um, in 2018, the Standing Senate uh, Committee on Canadian Heritage uh, did a study on combating Islamophobia, and they had recommendations, and I, I, and I don't think any of those have been implemented. Michal Schlesinger, uh, what do you think is needed uh, in terms of our hate laws? Are they strong enough? Um these are very good questions, but first of all, I want to thank you, Libby, for having us here at the Neighbours Canada to speak about topics. Most welcome. Are, thank you all for coming on. That, that should be of great concern, really, to all Canadians. Um, to, to be clear, uh, we are participating, of course, in, in today's anti-Semitism summit. We've been consulted on the planning of it. We've been invited to participate in it, and we've submitted a, a detailed paper that includes 39 action-oriented proposals. Um, so there are many aspects, uh, hate, hate crime laws, uh, there are many, many, uh, uh, many issues to be addressed, uh, including the one that uh, the Honourable Senator uh, mentioned, for example, um, with respect to online hate. Um, our view is that uh, one key action uh, would be or will be, uh, and, and we hope to see this uh, turn into a reality, as I'm sure it will, I hope it will, uh, not to leave action in the hands of service providers and platforms alone. Um, and we've suggested a mechanism, um, Libby, uh, perhaps patterned after the Canadian Broadcast Standards Council, uh, that will actually engage governments, platforms, and, and, and really all of uh, civil society um, in addressing, uh, it, for example, of course, anti-Semitic hate speech and, and all forms of uh, uh, hate speech, for that matter. Hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't know if that's going to allow you to uh, to uh, deal with things in a, a timely manner. Um, Simon okay. Granite. In in terms of hate hate laws, uh, I remember when we were talking about this terrible incident in London. Lawyers were saying that if once you de- it's it's much easier to get a conviction and to get a long sentence for someone if you just go for the murder as opposed to adding a hate crime to it and that uh they believe defense lawyers said will just make it easier to delay and and maybe uh you know get out of it so I can't uh, comment on anything before the courts, but what I can say is, is for CJ, we're calling on policy proposals in, in three categories, physical security, education, as well as an advisory council to the prime minister. And in particular to hate crimes, uh, we see that there's a lot that, that can be done. Uh, establishing a uniform definition of anti-Semitic hate crimes that would serve as a standard across the country for what constitutes a hate-motivated crime, and therefore would direct law enforcement to approach the management of an investigation and any possible laying of charges accordingly. We also believe that establishing dedicated hate crime units uh, within all law enforcement services across the country uh, is critical, and that includes the required resources and training to effectively address the unique features of hate-inspired crime. And then uh, speaking as well about 
uh, not just law enforcement training, but as well Crown prosecutors and officers of offices of the Attorney General, as well as the judiciary, uh, to provide training regarding what constitutes anti-Semitism. How do we recognize it? And what are the appropriate measures that should be adopted to respond to incidents of anti-Semitism, including a firmer approach to the investigation of suspected hate crimes and the laying of the hate crime-related charges? Senator Atalajan, again, for you, um, these discussions that I've had with defense attorneys who basically said that you'll get a better conviction and put the people away for longer if you stick to murder as opposed to hate crimes. Um, they, they might they might be right, but but the thing is this that you see it's the the online hate you know that then sometimes people use that to justify violence against Muslims. We have to combat that. We have to combat that. It's it's it's, it's if you look at it, um, it's just increased. You know, Muslims are we are three percent of the population. But the hate against the Muslims is an average of 12%. And this, I think, is low. Because a lot of Muslims that I know will not report hate crimes. They're too afraid. They're too afraid to even go to people who protect us. You know, we we have seen cases of, um, you know, Muslims coming and uh, at the border and they're being taken aside and being questioned. So we, we, have, to, we have to look at the government as a whole. We, what, what is the government doing? You know... Um, the government also has to look at its own role and the public's role. Hmm. You know, we have racial profiling at the border, at the airports, the surveillance of Muslim communities. And, and I'm sure you've heard recently some of the Muslim charities that are having a, um, a problem. So we, we, want, we, want to, we want a whole community uh, solution. We, yeah. we want conversations stopped before they lead to violence. Michal, um, what's your take on that? Well, uh, it may be that uh, we we need more time, in a sense, to, to delve into this uh, in, in detail. I mean, we've certainly, uh, at Neighbors Canada, been long advocating for enhanced training for hate crime officers, for publishing the Attorney General's guidelines uh, for uh, laying uh, uh, actual hate crimes rather than hate-motivated uh, crimes. There's a distinction there. And we've been pushing for the Attorney General to transparently indicate what its considerations are in determining whether or not to consent uh, to the laying of hate crime charges. Uh, that uh, is one thing. Uh, we've been long advocating for those many, many things, uh, including dedicated hate crime units in every major uh, city. Uh, but uh, I, I join with the uh, Honourable Senator in regards to the importance of combating online hate. That online hate often spills over into the real world. And we've seen that occur uh, time and time again uh, throughout the world, for that matter. Uh, and we're not immune to, to uh, uh, the trends that are seen worldwide. In fact, our audit of anti-Semitic incidents um, has shown as recently as uh, uh, our, our very, very recently. In, um, uh, and, of course, we create the annual audit of anti-Semitic incidents. But this is the fifth consecutive record-setting year for anti-Semitism in Canada. And I should add to that, uh, Libby, that uh, in May in particular, there was an unprecedented uh, rise in anti-Semitism to the extent that uh, Neighbors Canada released a a special report setting out uh, the degree to which uh, uh, the uh, rise in anti-Semitism had become a surge in anti-Semitism during the month of of May uh, of this year. Well, yeah, and uh, there are uh, a lot of people who say, well, we had cause because of what Israel was doing. And uh, Simon Granite, I mean, uh, there's a definition of anti-Semitism and using uh, what Israel is doing as an excuse is a big part of it. Well, we did see a connection. And, and as, uh, as my colleague on the panel mentioned, there was a spike in anti-Semitic incidents in May in connection with uh, the events overseas in Israel. Uh, But it's important, I think, for us to keep in mind that anti-Semitism, Jew hatred, is exceptional in a few key ways. Uh, First of all, it's global in scope. So we see a rise of uh, Jew hate and anti-Semitism and hostilities towards the community. We saw it across the world. Uh, Second, Anti-Semitism is is timeless, and it's constantly mutating to stay relevant in society. And I think, third, 
anti-Semitism, it comes from all angles across the political spectrum. And, and due to the nature and, and some of the unique natures and the pervasive problems with the scourge, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think this, this summit is so key and, and so important is it really provides us an opportunity to come together, um, to look at concrete actions that we can take uh, to make a meaningful difference and uh, and combat anti-Semitism here at home. Senator Atalajan, there uh, has always been a lot of talk about combating online hatred. Uh, and the counter-argument is if, if you close off or make one avenue difficult, they just go further underground. I mean, how do you deal with it? It's a difficult question, um, Libby. The thing is this, that it has to be monitored. I, you know, when you call for, um, you know, the killing of someone because they belong to a certain religion, you have to put a stop to that. It, it, you know, and, and we've seen that there's over 300 right uh, um, groups right now. And and I, I mean, I don't even go into that uh, web. And unless somebody points something out to me, I don't even look at it because it's just so upsetting um we have to do something we can't we can't let this continue i'm sure there's solutions we have to look at solutions and if 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 this continues and you know there there's some people now especially now during the pandemic we have seen an increase in online hate we have also seen an increase and in, in even um you know uh, um like at women leaders at women leaders the hate that started oh wow yes absolutely we we it's it's been it's been really bad during the pandemic because you have people they're just sitting in their basement with nothing else to do and and they're just going on these and then you have some young minds which are very impressionable who sometimes are very you know alone who don't have an avenue to talk to people who don't have an understanding and if this is what they're reading and and that's the case we've seen of this 20, 20 year old i mean i don't know you know what was going through his mind when he did that? Uh, and, they, and then the gentleman who who he talked to after he had done this, he said he was laughing, he was giggling about what he had done. Wow. Um, yes, I, I was going to ask that. You anticipated a, a question, and and Simon Granite, uh, what impact has the pandemic had? Well, it's had quite an impact as well. And and if we kind of uh, turn our minds back, uh, online hate, we saw a spike in it uh, against against Jews. Um, there were awful, awful posts across uh, social media and the internet connecting uh, Jews to COVID-19 with a bunch of uh, horribly anti-Semitic uh, memes and stories, all false, and all playing to the sense that uh, that that uh, you know this classic anti-Semitic sense that that Jews are at the center of of controlling things, and it's just horrible. And when we talk about online hate, you know, education is so vital to addressing hate. We we had a town hall. Uh, last week. And one of the biggest things we heard from community was the need for better education. And and talking about social media specifically, we're looking for a national social literacy campaign that seeks to educate and sensitize Canadians to the potency of social media and the role it plays in creating destructive behavior. And and that's not just uh, anti-Semitism, while an important part of it, but that would also include things like bullying, harassment, intimidation, uh, dissemination of hateful content and other things. And so social media, the, we really also need to develop a, a standardized component of social studies curriculum as well um, and leverage some of our recent learnings that, that we've had at CJ. We had a conference a few months ago on online hate and, and to continue calling for legislation to, to protect uh, Canadians against some of the some of the horrible things that we're seeing online. Well, and again, but, you know, I, I don't know if education is going to... People believe the most unbelievable things. And, and Michal, what about QAnon? What impact has that had? Um, well, let, let me begin by saying and, and addressing some of these... Uh, uh, some of these various uh, remarks that have been uh, uh, pointed to. I mean, QAnon, far right, uh, we focus on, on the far right as well. Uh, you're right, Libby, uh, neo-Nazism, uh, white supremacy, you know, Jews being uh, blamed for controlling the world, and we have to also focus on the radical left. We have many, many fronts yeah. uh, to deal with. 
um, including the COVID uh, that's been mentioned. In fact, during 2020, uh, we found in our statistics uh, that more than 44% of violent incidents were COVID-related during 2020. And, And COVID and its prolonged stress on our society, and that's just one of many issues. Uh, obviously, we can't deal with them in depth here, but COVID and its prolonged stress on our society, I would, I would say, has become yet another excuse to promote anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. I mean, it, we reached the point, was, is there anything Jews can't be blamed for? Um, in fact, uh, uh, we, we also see, of course, an obsession with uh, uh, Israel bashing, hidden under the guise of social justice. And it creates an atmosphere of absolute hate. Um, so we speak about education. In fact, uh, we have to address and we have to, and, and we've always uh, 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 advocated in favor, of course, of education. That goes without saying uh, about anti-Semitism, about our history, about uh, Holocaust remembrance and so on. But at the same time, uh, as we're fighting on different fronts, we have to keep in mind that this obsession with Israel bashing, um, as I said, that's hidden in this way or that attempts to hide itself as, as a social justice um, uh, issue is, is happening. And it's, it's seen not only would be in the universities, but in education now in general. Really, one has to ask oneself, why the obsession with Israel? I mean, if, even if you acknowledge the complexities of the issue in the middle, issues in the Middle East, why is this particular conflict of such interest? Why do we see selective indignation related to this conflict that is not equally aimed at other world so-called hot spots or areas of conflict. Um, and I could go on, maybe from the Chinese occupation of Tibet to the Tigray War in Ethiopia, to the treatment of Uyghurs, to the conflict in Yemen. Uh, no other conflict commands the attention of people to the extent of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Um, why is this conflict the, so- the focus of quote-unquote social justice concern to the veritable exclusion of others? Why is turning a geopolitical conflict into a cloak for anti-Semitism viewed as acceptable. It's obviously not acceptable, and it's that form of contemporary new anti-Semitism that we saw um, showing its ugly face um, uh, through the many rallies that were held uh, Canada-wide and uh, through which uh, uh, Jews were uh, subjected to Im- intimidation and harassment okay. at, at, at levels um, that haven't been seen for uh, uh, a, a very uh, long time in the sense of that spike in May. Um, we are uh, running out of time. Uh, Senator Atalajan, uh, concretely, what are you hoping for from tomorrow's summit? Like I said, I, I, we won't want to see a national uh, strategy for combating Islamophobia. And, you know, we can put anything down on paper. We can make all kinds of laws. But until they're not implemented, it, it's a useless piece of paper. We want we want a strategy by the end of the year, and and one thing I, before we go, Libya, I would say is that you know words matter, and and I after this incident when I rose in the Senate and I spoke, and I said that you know even even where I sit, you know language is used that is harmful to the perception of Muslims, you know regularly identifying Muslim majority countries as being condemned as Islamic state, and we, they choose to attack uh, identify an attacker by religion where they only Muslims. You know, words matter. And, and, and the role that the media plays. Sometimes Muslims are, and Islam are port- portrayed as a threat. And that offers justification for individuals to commit acts of violence. So we have to be very mindful of that. But I'm hoping that it's just not an election ploy. And I'm hoping that we will have a strategy by the end of the year. Well, I'm sure we are all hoping that it is not just an election ploy. Thank you so much, Senator Salma Talajan, Simon Granite, and Michal Schlesinger. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Libby. It was a Thank pleasure you. talking to you. Thank you. Right. We're going to take another break. And when we come back, on the one hand, we have a new target for vaccination, 90% to protect us from the Delta variant. We're also hearing that nurses are leaving the profession in droves. We will have that when we return. Let me give the numbers again. And people, be a little patient. I'll get to your calls, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. We'll be back after. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. 
Yesterday, our new chief medical officer of health said we should move the goalposts and our new target should be vaccinating 90% of the population in order to be able to fend off a fourth wave fueled by the Delta variant. But in the meantime, the province is still refusing to even mandate compulsory vaccination for healthcare workers. It's something that professional organizations from the Ontario Medical Association to the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario are calling for. And in the meantime, word that nurses are leaving the profession in droves after 16 grueling months. Let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I'd like to welcome Doris Greenspoon, CEO of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Hi, Doris. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Thanks for having us back. Uh, first of all, what is your reaction to what Kieran Moore had to say yesterday? He wants Beautiful. Nine- Beautiful, Libby, because... Karen Moore is following what we ask from day one, precautionary principle and being ahead of the curve. And let me tell you, RNO is leading the way with the mandatory vaccination call for the premier. They, they, with all due respect, the Ontario Medical Association joined us and said we are joining RNO. So, you know, as a feminist, I'm, I'm saying let's make sure that we understand nurses are leading the way because we are predominantly female profession. We need mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers, maybe. We need that. I, I, uh, let, let me just, I mean, here's what I have trouble wrapping my head around, and I know you're not a fan of the Premier, to say oh, the least. I am, I am a fan of the Premier and any Premier as long as they do what's good for the public. Okay, but the thing is that for this whole time, he's been saying uh, that he just listens to what the experts, what the docs are saying. And in this case... Medical professionals are saying mandatory vaccination for healthcare workers, and and we've even seen a few tragic cases in long term care deaths that didn't have to happen. That's right, Libby. And if you saw the open letter, so I wrote a letter, an open letter to the premier, which he already knew because last week we sent him messages already on this, so it's nothing by surprise. But now it's an open letter to him and the public with all the evidence, including those places that decided not to do that and why, because that evidence is shaky. Most places are moving to mandatory vaccination. The premium needs to be ahead of the curve and lead the way in Canada. The same as we asked the premium in the past to lead the way, if you remember, Libby, when I was with you on the issue of national standards for long-term care. He doesn't need to be the one that always comes last. He can be first for one. Well, it's interesting. And I mean, I guess the good news is that there are there's a whole pile of things that he had to backtrack on and change his mind on. I mean, it seems to me, it it seems curious why why to, you know, dig in his his heels on this. For no good reason, Libby, because uh, nurses are saying yes. And you know that we have a few handful, not many uh, that wouldn't agree with us. That doesn't matter. For us, the denominator is the public, and we think about anybody needing health services, whether in primary care, whether in long-term care, or whether in a hospital bed, those individuals do not need additional burden to guess if their caregiver, whether it's a nurse, a doctor, or PSW, or a respiratory therapist, was vaccinated or not, or worse, contract the virus, as you mentioned uh, before. They uh, need to know that we are fully vaccinated and point, period, period. And the science table, Libby, is in agreement with that. The science table is all science table. So, Premier, uh, he and I get very well along, listen to the nurses, and as he says to me all the time, I hear you, Doris, and I listen to you, well, do it now, announce it, mandatory vaccination. Two things, Libby, that need to happen to be successful and for him to get brownie points even. One is bring the vaccines to the workplace. You heard me before on this about long-term care. You know, not so much the issue with nurses, but PSWs, they don't have time to travel in the bus and stand up online 
I'm getting to- it's it's happened in in certain places. Yes, Doris, yes. I I just want to remind you that we had a conversation when these new guidelines came in, where in long term care they said you either have to show proof of vaccination or submit to education, and I remember you saying that that would work better than mandatory vaccination. You are correct, Lydia. You are correct. I said we start with education because if we educate well then, you know, hopefully this will happen. But the reality is we didn't reach the targets we need. In fact, just so you know, those those numbers are not even publicly available. You go and try to look what's the rate of vaccination uh, among health professionals. I wrote that in the letter to the premier. They need to become public, right? Public. So that was insufficient. Now we need to move to mandatory vaccination. It's both an issue of protecting the public. It's also an issue of protecting the health system. Because we need the beds not only for people that contract COVID. We need the beds actually for people that have other conditions aside of COVID that have been waiting for 17 months for procedures, surgeries, etc. And we need the human resources also to serve them. And if nurses on one side are leaving because they're exhausted and on another they will start to contract the virus or give the virus to others and then also to patients, like we will be in way four. Between that and not having a 90%, as Dr. Moore is asking, we need to do all of the above and be ahead of the curve and not have a fourth wave. Uh, I'm going to take a call from Evie in Toronto. Hi, Evie. Hi. Um, I, you know, have a friend, a very close friend, and she will not get the uh, the vaccine. And, you know, I hear about, oh, it's, you know, we don't know, it's not tested enough. and this, But, you know, in the past, it wasn't, uh, it was the same thing. You know, polio, uh, whatever, all the vaccines. I mean, it's all a chance, you know, really. I don't know what makes this particular time so uh such a cause for um rebelliousness uh do, have you tried to convince her evie <laughs> you cannot convince a non-vaxxer to well she's just a general anti-vaxxer i think i think uh you, people make a a distinction between hesitant which says oh this whatever you know it's not tested enough and people who are anti-vaxxers are not going to change their minds doris do you agree with that i 100 percent agree with that and even the hesitant people need a little bit of a you know push to get to the other bump uh, and I think the time is now because of this type of situation for mandatory vaccination for all healthcare workers. We need to be role models. And when we came into the profession, Libby, the first thing we came for is to do no harm. That's number one, do no harm, and then to do good. So if we are not vaccinated, we don't know if we are not doing harm. Well, exactly. Uh, Evie, well, another thing that you might tell your friend is that according to a poll, vaccinated Canadians uh, say basically they have no intention of hanging out with people who are unvaccinated. Yeah, Maybe well, I, 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 I won't do that. I mean, I. it's just that I don't understand the particular thing in this time. Why is it such a big, you know, fear this in this time we have, when it wasn't before. A stupidity on social media, for one thing. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it, you, there's no telling what uh, uh, stupid things that people believe. Evie, thanks for your call and good luck with you. That That might, you know, Doris, I think that if people start to realize that their friends won't see them. And if uh, we get smart about vaccine passports, that there are certain events they won't be able to attend, maybe that'll do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Livy, I want to tell you something you should bring to, to your program. And I know she will be willing to do that. My executive assistant. I will send you her tweet, okay? Okay. Because she was hesitant. And she said, finally, I did it. And people ask her what made you this what made you be hesitant? She explained. What made you decide? She explained. This is real people, you know, that actually will help a lot the public to to hear. 
Uh, uh, her I, name is P.G. Batten, and she is today a hero for uh, me because she crossed the bump, and now she's speaking to others. That's 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 great. But Doris, I just have one thing I wanted to bring up. We only have about a minute left, and this is uh, stuff that I was reading from the United States, and it's about healthcare workers, and they are basically having a fourth wave caused by Delta, unvaccinated people, and, and is talking about healthcare workers saying, they resent those people and they have a hard time when they have to take care of those people because it was all of unavoid. It was avoidable. And do we blame them? Lily? I don't blame any of my colleagues. My colleagues have not been vocal about that in the media, but I have heard from them. I heard from colleagues in Spain, even in the first, second wave, just picture that people that when they are dying, they still think that it's not a virus. Lily. This is this is brainwashing to the nth degree. This is not anymore ignorance. This is brainwashing. The evidence is clear. The evidence that came out of Israel, just so you know, recent recent, is that you look at who is in the ICUs because again there are people in the ICUs. Yep. Two groups: unvaccinated young people and very old people, 80, well, I don't know if it's very old, but you know what I mean, 80 (laughs) plus, 80 plus, 85 plus, vaccinated because they still can catch, remember, we can catch the virus with the the vaccine. It's just that we don't end up in an ICU, but if you're 85 plus, you may end up in an ICU. So still, the vaccine is to protect ourselves and others. Those young people in ICUs, I wrote in my blog, Doris' blog, People should Google our new Doris blog about the long haul COVID. People, we are not talking enough about that. You should do a whole program. When people will read what long haul COVID is, they will go and get vaccinated. Not because they will only may die, but actually they may still with symptoms for a long time that are awful. Awful. Okay, Doris, we, we, we have our brief for a whole bunch of topics to come from you. Thank you very much for being with us. PG, that's your number one. It will do a lot of good to those that are still hesitant. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.